Coming up next, The Bear on KCRW Berlin. It's the show that gives you a front row seat to an evening of great storytelling recorded live in Berlin. The theme of today's show is Handmade, Stories of Self-Creation. Stay tuned. Welcome to The Bear on KCRW Berlin. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. Each month, The Bear hosts an event where people are invited to share stories centered around a certain theme. And each month, we bring you some of our favorite stories from the evening. On today's program, Handmade, Stories of Self-Creation. These true personal stories were recorded in February. German singer-songwriter Eric Burmeister performed music live. The first story on tonight's show comes from Ben McGuire. It's titled, A Dog Called Calgary. Being new to Berlin and new to this apartment building, the knock on my door was something of a surprise. I open the door and there's my neighbor. Ben, could I borrow your toolbox? Sure. I go in, I come back, and I hand her a hammer. She says, that's not a toolbox, that's a hammer. I say, it's my toolbox. She looks at me with this look of half disgust and half contempt. And she says, what sort of a man are you? Australia is not the best place to grow up when you're not very good with your hands because in Australia, notions of masculinity and manhood revolve around one measure only. How good are you with your hands? Can you fix stuff? Can you make stuff? And can you fight? And for me, the answer to each of those questions is no. I can't. The evidence of my failure as a man came out early. At age three or four, I'd be woken by my little sister who would get me out of bed, dress herself, and then dress me because at three or four, I couldn't work out my buttons. My first day at kindergarten, I come home from kindergarten absolutely distraught. Mum, 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 they made us do finger painting. And what's the problem with that? I've got my fingers dirty. <laughs> and at school, it didn't get any better. We had compulsory woodwork, and for woodwork, they made us make a letter opener, as if Australia was returning to Victorian England. Yeah. <laughs> Darcy, would you avail me of my letter opener? I think I have a letter from the Duke here. A letter opener is not much use, and mine even less use, because it didn't look like a letter opener. It looked like one of those makeshift weapons you see in prison documentaries that have been <laughs> found in the cell when they do the cell search. And having made this, you have to take it to the teacher to get a grade. And I took mine to the teacher and handed him the letter opener. And the teacher looks at the letter opener and he looks at me and looks at the letter opener and looks at me. And he says, Maguire, I think you should stick to the books. <laughs> I didn't fare any better in love. 16, 17, my first real girlfriend, and I pluck up the courage to hold her hand. And she takes her hand and she lifts it. And I'm thinking, oh, this is love. She says, Ben, your hands are so soft. <laughs> so I leave my teens with this conception of 
myself as a failure. My hands in particular have failed me. They're big, but they're useless. And they're big and they're soft. I go to university in Canada, 1997, and between terms I'm working at a holiday centre for disabled kids. And on this last week of the summer, there's a special week reserved for kids with Down syndrome. And I don't know how much experience you've had with kids with Down syndrome, but they are so full of energy and so full of love. I've never in one week had so many hugs. And I've never in one week heard so many renditions of this song. If you want to be my lover, got to get with my friends. Yes, the Spice Girls, they decided they would give us a concert, the staff a concert, and the entire week they choreographed it and they rehearsed it. The entire week. At the end of the week and the end of the three months, I was so exhausted that I felt I needed a break. I had two weeks until university started again, and I had what I thought was 14 days to kill. If I could go back and tell that 21-year-old, never, ever kill 14 days. 14 days are so precious. I bought myself a second-hand bike, and I rustled up a tent, and I started riding from Vancouver to Calgary. 1,400 kilometres, 14 days, 14 nights, and therefore, 14 campfires. The first day was the most challenging. Most of it was uphill, and I had not one puncture, not two, not three, four, five, but six punctures. <laughs> Worst nightmare for a man who can't fix things. <laughs> I make it by the end of the first day to a town ironically called Hope. Just, <laughs> just outside Hope, there's an artisan who's set up his table, and on the table are these beautiful wood carvings. And I stop and I say to him, I can't buy a carving, but would you sell me a carving knife and a block of wood? And he says, yes, here's one. And he hands me this block of wood. I was going to make a dog out of this. Can you see the dog in this? Well, I kind of couldn't, but <laughs> I thought to myself, what was Michelangelo's answer when somebody said to him, how did you carve David? And he apocryphally said, I just chipped away anything that wasn't David. So as I sat at my campfire night after night, I just started chipping away at this block, chipping away everything that wasn't a dog. And slowly, a miracle emerged. This block started to look like a dog. And it wasn't just that miracle. There was also something to do with me. As I chipped away at that and carved, I felt like I was chipping away at this conception of myself as a man with useless hands. I was carving myself a new identity. And as this trip continued, as I got closer and closer and closer to Calgary, the thing looked more and more and more like a dog. And I was more and more nervous. What if I mess it up from here? And in little towns, I would stop and buy sandpaper and then Danish oil and polished and sanded and polished and sanded until the last day, sitting in Calgary by the river, I finished this dog because it's important to me that this journey for the dog and for me, has to be finished in Calgary. And I hold it up. And there it is. It's a dog. Recognisably a dog. <laughs> I'm not claiming to be Auguste Rodin, but it's a dog. <laughs> I named it Calgary. I had an ice cream to celebrate, went to the airport, flew back to Vancouver, and posted this Calgary dog to my grandmother back in Australia. At the time, she was 79, and she put Calgary up on the windowsill. And Calgary looked over her like some guard dog. 
for 21 years. She's now 100. She talks to Calgary. And she tells me in talking to Calgary, she feels closer to me because I've lived overseas. And I imagine that her there pottering away in her kitchen, talking to Calgary and through talking to Calgary, talking to me. And I wonder now when she dies, which will be soon, she's 100, what's going to happen to this dog? What's going to happen to Calgary? He'll probably end up on the, on the dump somewhere, but it's not really about that piece of wood because for me, he's served his purpose. He became a conduit through which I began to understand myself in a new way. And he became a conduit for a 21-year-long conversation between my grandmother and her absent grandson. As my neighbour hands me back the hammer, I close the door and say, I'm sorry I couldn't help you with the toolbox. And it was Calgary that I think of because it was Calgary that gave me the answer to her question. What sort of a man am I? I'm a man without a toolbox. My tools are other. And it's taken me a long, long time to realize. But I can live with that. Thank you. That was a dog called Calgary from Ben McGuire. You're listening to The Bear on KCRW Berlin. We'll be back with more stories on self-creation after these messages. There are several ways to leave prison. Some folk have half the town waiting for them on the other side of that gate. And some people have no one at all. On the next Snap Judgment, a special ear hustle collaboration, Kissing the Concrete. Snap Judgment, do not miss it. Tune in to Snap Judgment Sunday afternoons at 1 on 104.1 KCRW Berlin. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KCRW Berlin. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by emailing us at sponsorships at kcrwberlin.org or online at kcrwberlin.com slash sponsorships. Welcome back to The Bear on KCRW Berlin. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. On the last Saturday of every month, we bring you stories recorded live at Bear Storytelling events here in Berlin. These stories were recorded on February 15th at Meet Pavilion in Mitte. The theme of the evening was Handmade, Stories of Self-Creation. The next story comes from Jay Ryan. Note that it contains some frank reflections on sexuality. The story is called, Who You Gonna Call? So I want you to think about something that you've done that no one else has ever done. And I don't mean something rare like climbing Mount Everest. That's very impressive, but 5,000 people have made it to the top. So I mean something that you've done that no one in all of history has ever done. Got it? Because I think I have something. And a lot of why I did what I did was because when I was young, I was very shy and awkward and took anything romantic very serious. Um, 
I wouldn't do anything physical with anyone unless I thought I would be with them forever. So not a lot happened. For example, <laughs> when I was 18, I had my first girlfriend, and it took months and hours of conversation for her to convince me to hold her hand. Um, the next day, when contemplating the eternal ramifications of this act, I broke down and broke up with her. Uh, when we held hands, it was actually Valentine's Day, so the day after we broke up was 15 years ago today. So uh, happy breakup anniversary, Danielle. Um, she has five kids now, so none are mine. Um, so, so yeah, why, why was I like this? Why was I so shy? And, and what led to this statistical improbability? Um, and, and what does this mean in a larger sense? Um, to understand this, I'm going to tell you a story about being given the power of God to make miracles, uh, then one miracle, and finally losing it all. I grew up in a very strict Christian religion uh, called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Most people know it as uh, Mormonism. And in Mormonism, there are a few notable rituals. The first ritual, I'm eight years old, dressed all in white, standing in a large tub filled with water. My father's in the tub with me, and outside the tub is an audience watching, because this isn't a bath to clean dirt off my body. This is a bath to clean sins from my soul. And suddenly my father raises his right hand, and he says, Brian Nielsen, having been commissioned of Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen. And he plunges me into the water and I come up and I'm born again. And he hugs me and he welcomes me as a true member of the Mormon church. Uh, it was a highlight of my youth. And later that day, I was given a prayer blessing where I was given what Mormons call the gift of the Holy Ghost. And I'm told that I have the voice of God inside me now, that I can call on him anytime I need. It's kind of like someone gave you the phone number to God and you can just reach him anytime that you need to. The second ritual, I was 12 and I was sitting on a cold metal fold-out chair and six men were around me in a circle and they came and one by one put their hands on my head. And then my grandpa started to say, by the power of the Melchizedek priesthood, I confer upon you the Lord's priesthood. And he goes on to tell me that I've now been endowed with special abilities where I can lay my hands on someone else's head and heal their disease or give them the answer to their deepest questions or maybe even raise the dead. So these hands have the power of God to make miracles. And uh, what, what do I do? Well, I'm a teenage boy, and um, mostly I, I masturbated a lot. And, <laughs> and I felt really bad about it because... Mormons, like many puritanical Christians, have a really strict, uh, strict ideas on sexuality. They believe that any sexual act should only be done in a, a marriage with a man and a woman. And uh, so for me, I was just really guilt-ridden, and I spent so many nights on my knees crying to God, asking him to forgive me for my repeated sexual sins, and I'd promise him I would never do it again. But I would do it again, and... <laughs> I spent so many nights praying, I actually got calluses on my knees. I was 19 when I finally left the church. And so it's odd that that was the same year that I finally had my first miracle. Uh, it wasn't a good miracle, just an impressive one. And this miracle happened at the mall. So you can imagine bright fluorescent lights, um, a lot of kitschy kiosks all around, and Britney Spears' Toxic playing through the halls. Um, it was 2004, so... Um, and I was, again, just guilt-ridden, shy, 
and I was standing uh, waiting for my friends to come so we could go into a movie and I had my arms folded and my eyes were down and suddenly this girl approaches me and she kind of jumps in and she says hey and she touches my arm and says uh, you know I saw you over here looking lonely and I thought I'd say you know what the hell I'll say hi and my first thought is you know she said hell she swore you know that's <laughs> you know that's not my type and and she keeps you know she's she's like biting her lip you know she's just doing everything she can to flirt it's very assertive I'm not used to this at all and I just want to get out of there she asked me what I'm doing but I'm, I'm trying to find an excuse to go and I'm mumbling you know uh, well my friends are coming and and she stops me and she shoves her phone into my chest and she says, give me your number. And I unfold my arms and catch this Nokia brick phone. This is you know, two years before the iPhone. It had this custom cheetah faceplate. <laughs> and, um, and I'm thinking what to do. Like I, I'm worried about the fallout from rejection. So I, I decide to lie and give her a fake number. And so I take my miracle hand and uh, type in a fake number and hand the phone back to her, thinking, this is it, you know, I can get out of here free. And she looks at her phone, really confused, and looks back at me and says, are you serious? Like, yeah. And she looks me, and she's just staring so hard, I'm still avoiding eye contact as much as I can. She looks at me so intensely, I finally lock eyes with her, and she tells me, that's my phone number that you put in. So I gave a girl a fake number, and it was her number. All, all I'd essentially given her was a way to call herself, and you know she just talked to herself like an idiot at that point. And yeah, I, I think this is really the only impressive things these you know God-infused miracle hands did um, <laughs> before it all fell apart. Because a few months went by, and I was learning more and more about this church, my childhood faith, and and the more I learned, the the more I had uh, problems with it, and, uh, and I was thinking of, of leaving it. And it was a really difficult moment, and I remember one night in particular, I was just there, all the, the weight from this problem was, was so much that I, I needed comfort, I needed guidance. You know, where, where do you go for comfort? Because for me, prayer was like an instinct. You know, it was, it was as easy as putting on socks but still as important to me as talking to a parent on a deathbed because God, my Father in heaven, knew me better than I knew myself and loved me wholly and completely. And I knew that he knew what I could do. And so the weight was on me. I rolled off be my bed and my knees fell into these divots in the carpet where they always went. And I put my hands up, closed my eyes and said, Dear God, and I stopped because I realized everything I knew about God came from this religion and I saw the hypocrisy in what I was doing what you know who was really up there is anyone up there and and I, I was kneeling there and I started to cry and to shake and I've never felt more alone in my life and I was becoming I was coming face to face with this new reality where like that poor girl from the mall I'd been duped too, because I thought my whole life I was calling God, but I was just talking to myself the whole time. Thank you. You've just heard Who You Gonna Call from storyteller Jay Ryan. We're taking a short break. 
And when we come back, our final stories for this evening on self-creation. Stay tuned. Johanna, so geht das nicht. Du weißt, ich liebe dich. Johanna, so geht das nicht. Du weißt, ich liebe dich. Next time on Studio 360. Constantly you're told Hollywood wisdom. Oh, you know, Latin people don't want to see Latin people. He's a screen star, but his heart's on the stage. I go, really? Who do they want to see? The Norwegians? John Leguizamo's singular Broadway career. That is next time on Studio 360. Studio 360, Sunday nights at 6 on KCRW Berlin. This week on This American Life, Shmilo was 12 when she was taken captive by members of her own family. They kept her for years. And her one refuge was this book, the only book she had that she kept in secret. It was the novel Little Women. Written in 1868, it seemed to have all kinds of parallels and lessons for her exact situation, where she was being told to be a certain kind of girl. That's this week. Catch This American Life every Sunday at 5 p.m. on KCRW Berlin. This is the week we were waiting for when lawman Robert Mueller, a real-life Clint Eastwood, sat down to lay some truth on us all. And it turns out he really is like Clint Eastwood, who happens to be 89 years old. I'm Peter Sagal. Join us as we ask orchestra conductor Marin Alsop how to make a career out of waving your arms at people. Join us for the news quiz that actually benefits from low expectations. That's Wait, Wait from NPR. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, every Sunday morning at 9 on KCRW Berlin. You're listening to The Bear on KCRW Berlin. The theme of tonight's show is Handmade, Stories of Self-Creation. We'll hear now from Galina Fedelova. Her story is called Pink Horses. Okay. Hi there. So, when I was 12, I was crazy about horses. And when I say crazy, I mean it. I had a toy collection of 25 horses. I was, the only thing I was drawing were horses. And I also had clothes with horses. I have wallpaper with horses. I had notebooks with horses. <laughs> I even wrote stories about horses. You know, like I had like, usually like girls have a prince and princess, but me, I had a prince and a princess horse. I was 12, and I was also graduating from the, high, uh, from the art school. And since it was graduation, I was supposed, uh, supposed to have a serious project, a graduation project, my first serious project. And I was supposed to draw something big, like a really, really nice painting to show what I actually learned from the, all these years. But um, the theme was, anything you want, it should be something inspirational. So I thought, yay, horses. <laughs> I need to draw something about horses, but it needs to be extraordinary because it's a big project and it's a serious one. So I start thinking, so okay, horses, but how I can actually depict it the best possible way. And I couldn't find anything, but 
My mom helped me. She told me, you know, there is one poem by the famous poet, and there is a phrase. In the morning, right? Uh, in the morning light, I was riding a pink horse, and I thought there is something in that. So just imagine, it's a green field in summer, and it's a fresh morning, and the light is still shy, and the white horses gracefully running in the pink morning light. I thought. That's it. This is what I want. This is what I want to draw. It's so beautiful and so inspirational. I will do that. So okay, I have my theme, and I just need to start drawing, right? And I start drawing, and everything just went wrong. You know, I'm drawing the grass. It's not natural. I'm drawing the horses. They're not graceful. I'm trying to depict the light and the sky and it's just dark and my pink is just suddenly became dirty and I'm looking at my drawing and I start hating it. I, but I don't understand what just went wrong. And there was a moment that my mom, she went to my room and I was drawing my project and crying at the same time. And she looked at my drawing and said like, hmm. It doesn't look like an illustration to that poem. And then she asked me, like, what's wrong? You were drawing horses since I know you. And I said, I don't know. I just hate it. I hate everything about this project. I hate the sky. I hate the horses. I hate the poem. And I hate that poet. <laughs> she said, like, okay, okay, wait, wait, wait. Just like, just hush, calm down. You still have two days before the deadline. So just start over again. It's not a big deal. But I said, I can't. I hate it. And with every stroke, I hate it even more. So in the end, I just have to submit the painting that I have it with my horses, which, who are not graceful, and the sky, which is not that pink and everything. And... I brought it to my teacher. I could see the disappointment on his face. It was a serious project. But of course, I was 12, so he didn't tell me anything. And I got a good grade. But that year was exactly the year that they decided to actually to put all the drawings from the art school to the main hall. <laughs> so till the end of the year, I have to go to school and see my horses <laughs> running in the pink morning light. <laughs> well, that was the first time that I understood that if you treat something way too serious, you might ruin it. Then I was 12. I stopped being crazy about horses. But, well, actually not because of this story. I turned 13 and I just stopped, started drawing boys. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That was Pink Horses from Galina Fedelova. The final storyteller we'll hear from tonight is Mike Hurst. His story is called My Other Love. Of course I love my partner, I love my kids, 
but I have another love. I love bread. No, 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 you don't understand. I love, capital L-O-V-E, bread. When I look at this loaf, you know what curling is? The curling stone, about that size. A crust that is so crunchy, but not hard. A brown that is so rich, but not black and burnt. A warmth that comes out of that loaf oh, to die for. Carrying an aroma that fills the room, reaches your nostrils, and you can't wait to sink your teeth in. A chewiness inside that is so Mm, and not dry. <laughs> you take a knife, you start cutting through that crust, you feel it give a little, not a lot. <laughs> <coughs> it continues to slice through the chewy side, just like melted butter. You liberated that first perfect slice. The warmth comes off of it, it's no longer hot. You take that room temperature butter, you spread it across. It gets soft, but it doesn't melt. <laughs> you take that piece of bread and you finally bite into it. And it's almost like the first time you saw your child. <laughs> Did I mention I love bread? At the time, I was living in California in the US. And yes, they have bakeries. Yes, they have bread. But what do they have? They have this wonder bread that you get that's this big. You squeeze it together. You sort of make two slices out of it, you eat it, and you realize there it's not about the bread, it's what's in between. <laughs> yes, they have beautiful sourdough, San Francisco sourdough, but they don't have this German bread. They don't have this thing I love that I just described. So I said, you know what? You're a man of this age. You can make bread. So I went on the internet, I found myself a recipe, I went out and got all my ingredients, and I said, huh, I could almost taste it. And I started out, I put the yeast in, I put the water in, I put a little bit of honey in, I started mixing it all up, I put the other ingredients in, and then I let it sit. I said, that's all I have to do, let it sit. I put the little rag over it, and I went and did something else. Came back after about an hour. I forgot how much dough was in there. I looked at it, it rose. And the recipe said, need, need it again. So I needed it again. And I, oh, the water was running in my mouth. And I'm like, oh, I can't wait. I cover it up. I let it sit for another hour. 
that's it. Now I put it into my bread form, put it in the oven. Oh, I can't wait. This is going to be so good. I baked it. When it came out, I could barely get out of the form. I was looking for this crunchy, crispy edge. It didn't have an edge. (laughs) I looked for this fluffiness, for this, yes, you could feel it, but it, it didn't quite let go, but it, mine was more like a rock. I looked for this aroma to come off. It had no aroma. But it came out of the oven. It was warm. I took my knife, useless. I should have brought a chisel to separate the two halves. Needless to say, this was not a piece of bread. It was more like a weapon that you could destroy a windshield with. But I didn't give up. I went back. I talked to my mother. And I'm embarrassed to say my mother my grandmother are Bachmeister. I felt like an adopted child. (laughs) When I did it again, my mother said, how long did it take you? I said, altogether? Probably a little bit over three hours. She says, three hours? <laughs> a bread should, just the first part should take three hours, and the next part should take three hours, and the following parts should take three hours. So if you start in the morning, you probably eat bread the next day. On my second bread, I did all the same steps. I had the water just right in terms of warmth. I had the yeast. I had everything in it. I did wait. I constantly looked into it. I said, it's not going yet. It's not going yet. And then, like three hours, I said, there's nothing happening here. Eventually, after six hours, my first dough went. My second bread came out. It wasn't that crunchy. But this time, it wasn't a rock. It wasn't something I could throw at somebody and they would get injured. I could cut into this one. It tasted almost like bread. <laughs> I secretly was proud. I did not show it to my family. And I figured out that I just can't bake bread. I will try again, but I've discovered another problem. I love bread, but bread doesn't love me. Or it, maybe it loves me so much that it holds on to me. And I, so if I, if I make a slice of, of a, a loaf of bread, I could apply it directly. And I, it just doesn't work for me. So that's when I moved from California to Germany, because here people know how to make German bread. And I've come back to heaven. My partner, I love, but I also have the other love. Thank you. That was my other love from Mike Hurst, our final storyteller for this evening. These true personal stories were recorded live at the Bear on February 15th at Meech Pavilion in Mitte. 
The Bear was created by Diane Nyman and inspired by The Moth. You heard live music in this evening's show from Eric Burmeister. Our show's theme is I Need Love, remixed by DJ Spectre. If you'd like to tell a story or attend the next Bear Storytelling Evening, go to kcrwberlin.com slash thebear. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. Thanks for tuning in.